The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect the official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like more hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. On tonight's show, we will be talking about Parkinson's disease with the great Dr. Albert Hung. This was a fantastic episode. I, of course, am Dr. Matthew Frank Watto here with my my great friend, whose birthday is this week, Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. Actually, not the week this is coming out, but as we're recording, his birthday's coming up. He is going to be... I won't give you his old. age. Let's just say old. old. Like just well, well into middle age. <laughs> old enough that his med students don't understand any of his references. <laughs> yeah, the Seinfeld jokes just don't sink the way they used to. So, Paul, can you tell the audience uh, what is it that we do on the Curbsiders and then introduce our wonderful uh, co-host correspondent for this episode? Sure, happy to. As always, Matt, we are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews from your clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. As you mentioned, we talked to Dr. Albert Hung tonight about uh, the, the workup and management of Parkinson's. Uh, and before you hear all about him, I'm going to introduce you to our other co-host tonight, our producer extraordinaire, um, remarkable medical student, my future boss, um, excited to introduce <laughs> Melanie Gandhi. Melanie, how are you tonight? I'm good. Great. Why don't you tell us about who we talked to and a little bit about what we talked about? Sure. Yeah, we had a wonderful conversation tonight with our guest, Dr. Albert Hung. Dr. Hung is the medical director of the Parkinson's Foundation Center of Excellence at Massachusetts General Hospital, the associate director of the MGH Movement Disorders Division, and an assistant professor of neurology at Harvard Medical School. He specializes in the treatment of Parkinson's disease and other movement disorders and sees patients at MGH and Brigham Women's Hospital. As a member of the Parkinson study group, he also participates in clinical research trials to identify and develop new treatments for Parkinson's disease. So this episode, Dr. Hung taught us a lot of wonderful pearls about diagnosis and management of Parkinson's disease, including his approach to the initial history and physical, his framework for treatment, tips for managing non-motor features of Parkinson's, like autonomic symptoms and cognitive symptoms, and a lot more. Yeah, and Paul, before we get on to the episode, I just wanted to know, did you know, uh, why did the neuron like to sleep on the top bunk bed, Paul? I feel like I should be able to figure this one out, but I, I don't know, Matt. Why, why would that be? You're not even trying. Paul, <laughs> he wanted to have a high resting potential. I would have never gotten that. My brain doesn't work in that way. Great stuff. Well, yeah, I, I agree, Paul. It was great stuff. So thank you to uh, 72hilariousneurologypuns.com. <laughs> and uh, a reminder that this and most episodes will be available for free CME credit for all health professionals through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. Albert, we've had some technical difficulties, but we're ready to go. And the audience is definitely going to want to hear a little bit about yourself, a one-liner, and then throw in some sort of hobby or interest that you have outside of medicine. Sure. No, great. Thanks very much for the uh, opportunity to uh, be part of the podcast. So I've been in Boston for a long time now. I'm actually a native Chicagoan, a diehard Chicago Cubs fan. <laughs> so uh, it's now been a few years since we've had anything to root about, but uh, I'm really looking forward to uh, sharing uh, some information about Parkinson's tonight. Yeah, we're we're uh, you know to date to date when we're recording the Phillies, Paul, are about to enter the World Series. I know Paul's a huge Phillies fan. 
I listen, it's it's nice when this grumpy city is happy for even just a brief moment in time. So if this is what does it, great. Go with God. <laughs> All right. By the time this comes out, we will either had uh, uh, probably some riots in the city, uh, joyous riots, riots. or well, there's going to be riots either way. Well, who am I kidding? This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You know, life, as I've said many times before, is complicated and challenging and can be emotionally stressful. And, you know, we don't get a whole lot of teaching as we grow up about how to deal with our emotions and how to recognize how we respond to our emotions and sort of how those things tie together. There's just, there's no user manual is what I'm saying here. So when what you're doing is not working for you, it is normal to feel stuck. And navigating your life's challenges can make you feel unsure, whether we're talking about a career change, a new relationship, becoming a parent, any of the new stressors that are sort of persistently declaring themselves throughout your life. BetterHelp has connected over 3 million people with licensed therapists. It is convenient and accessible anywhere, and it is 100% online. You know, and the benefits of therapy are myriad. And really, the most important things are that you learn coping skills and self-empowerment and how to deal with the emotions that arise as a result of the stresses of life. Uh, And as the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists available 100% online. Plus, it's affordable. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with the therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash curb. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash curb. Well, we have with us uh, our... our our producer, super producer, uh, Malini Gandhi. Malini, can you please uh, start us off with a case here from Cashlack Memorial? Because we want to make sure we have plenty of time to talk about Parkinson's. Sure. So we have a case of Mr. Robinson. He is a 68-year-old man, has a history of hypertension and gout. And he reports during his primary care visit with you that he's been experiencing this intermittent tremor in his right hand. He said he initially didn't think much of it, but over the past year, it's gotten worse and then recently has begun affecting his left hand as well. He said he thinks the tremor is worse when he's not using his hands. He initially additionally tells you that he has been feeling stiff and slowed down lately. He initially attributed it to aging, but tells you he's been having a lot of trouble doing little tasks with his hands, like buttoning his jacket or tying his shoes. He also mentions that his wife has been complaining that she can't read the shopping list that he writes out without her glasses because his handwriting has become very small. When you take a review of systems, he does report some issues with constipation as well as some episodes of lightheadedness when he gets up from lying down. So... To to start off with this case here, I think the really we always start with the history. Uh, so Albert, can you talk us through how you think about it when you're when you're talking to a patient? Like, what are you listening for in, as you're getting this history from the patient and his wife? Absolutely. So I will just underscore that for most movement disorders, including Parkinson's disease, the diagnosis is going to be made largely on the history and on the exam. We don't really rely that much on other tests. And so that makes the first time you're discussing the particular symptom with the patient all the more important. So when I see somebody and we're thinking about, well, initially a a presentation with tremor and, and a question of Parkinson's, there's a few things that I'm really listening for. One is the tempo of the symptoms. 
So somebody who has a Parkinson's tremor is likely not to really notice it or complain about it at the start, but it's something that comes on very gradually. Oftentimes, because it generally is a rest tremor, the family member or the PCP may be the first one to mention it. Sometimes the patient themselves downplay it because it doesn't necessarily interfere that much with their activity. Tremor is one of the main symptoms, but not the only symptom that we look for in terms of trying to make a diagnosis of Parkinsonism. And the tremor in this case, an asymmetric rest tremor, is probably the most typical type of tremor we would associate with Parkinsonism. We did an episode on tremors like 300-some podcast episodes ago, Paul, which uh, it, was, it, was, it was called uh, Tremor, and it was one, one Degree of Kevin Bacon, Paul, which is a title you should be very <laughs> proud of. <laughs> yeah, great stuff. Uh, and the cover looks like the cover of the Tremors movie. But uh, can you talk a little bit about when you're, when you're taking the history about tremor in Parkinson's, which, uh, which sort of things do you ask for that, like— maybe make you more suspicious as a Parkinson's tremor rather than a central tremor, which is, uh, I, I usually pray it's a central tremor when a patient <laughs> comes to me with tremor, because then you could just be like, ah, oh, it's, it may be bothersome. We can do some stuff for that, but you know, it's not Parkinson's. <laughs> sure. So, you know, I think that all the time that you are talking to the patient in the office, you're watching them because most of movement disorders is diagnosed based on observation. And so what may, um, when a patient complains of a rest tremor, in the office, you may not see that much more than a twitching of the thumb or a little bit of a shaking of the hand, and it can come and go. So um, what I'm really looking for is oftentimes, if it's a very large amplitude tremor, asymmetric rest tremor, the diagnosis of Parkinsonism is not difficult to make. It's that subtle tremor, a little bit of shaking, a little bit of twitching. Um, that really makes you pause and, and think about, you know, is this really Parkinsonism that I'm dealing with? One other important aspect of the tremor to realize is that patients with Parkinson's disease can also have a postural tremor. So when you ask a person to bring their hands up, it can shake. One of the distinguishing features between the postural tremor of Parkinsonism and, say, ET, is that somebody with a central tremor, you put the hands up and they'll be shaking right away. Somebody with a Parkinsonian tremor, when they bring their hands up, it may be quite still, but when they're maintaining the position, the hand will start to shake or even sort of wind up. And we call that a re-emergent tremor. And a re-emergent postural tremor, again, should make you think more of Parkinson's disease, whereas the tremor that's there from the start, and especially if it's bilateral, should make you think of ET. And what kind of questions should we be asking to assess for bradykinesia? I feel like I have less of a, an illness script for that necessarily. So how, how are you assessing that, just sort of, especially in the history portion of the show? I think the point brought up in this case is a really good one. And that is that oftentimes bradykinesia can be fairly subtle and bradykinesia can often be attributed to other issues, say um, age or arthritis or depression. People will just slow down. And in the absence of a tremor, identifying that bradykinesia can sometimes be difficult. So some of the things that I will ask for are essentially changes in a person's daily routine. If you're asking for appendicular bradykinesia using the hands, uh, you can ask about handwriting. The micrographia that was described in the case is a common symptom. People will often describe bradykinesia with buttons or zippers or trouble cutting food, um, putting their arm into a sleeve. Now, you always have to rule out that there's something else, you know, arthritis, a rotator cuff, something like that. 
it's interesting, there's been actually lots of reports about people who eventually were diagnosed with Parkinsonism initially being diagnosed with frozen shoulder right. because they come in with stiffness. Um, and so those types of symptoms are important to um, ask for other signs of bradykinesia that I will often ask difficulty getting in and out of bed, in and out of a car or a chair. Um, and so these are the types of questions I ask. And again, I'm probing without trying to ask too many leading questions to try to get a sense of whether there's asymmetry that would make a diagnosis of idiopathic Parkinson's disease more likely. And the non-motor symptoms are something that I had not... They, I have to confess, they were not so much on my radar. I knew about orthostatic hypotension, but I, I didn't realize that they often proceeded. And there, when reading through the list of these, the, there's bladder problems, constipation, like I said, the orthostatic hypotension. I mean, Paul, we see these commonly in primary care, so now I'm going to be paranoid everyone has Parkinson's. But can you tell me like, what constellation of those non-motor symptoms make you start to wonder, could this patient have Parkinson's? You know, I think this is actually one of the hottest areas in Parkinson's research these days, because um, we really want to be able to identify who's going to be at risk for developing Parkinson's motor symptoms before they develop them. Um, so I would say that the three premotor symptoms that are most helpful, one is hyposmia, changes in smell. Another one is constipation. And the third and the most specific is REM sleep behavior disorder. So REM sleep behavior disorder, or RBD, refers to um, a sleep disorder where people during the REM phase of sleep uh, are active. You know, most people during REM sleep, all, they ha all that moves is their eyes. The rest of their body is still, they're atonic. And so people who have REM sleep behavior disorder during that phase of dream sleep will actually act out their dream. They'll yell, they'll scream, they punch, they kick. Oftentimes, the person themselves aren't aware of it. It's the bed partner, other people in the house who will say, you know what, my partner's doing this. Um, I've had people tell me that they thought they were being chased and they threw themselves out of the bed. And so they found themselves on the floor a couple of times unexplained. When you get that history of REM sleep behavior disorder, it, you should pause and ask yourself, are there any other signs to suggest Parkinsonism? Because there's quite a high rate of phenoconversion from RBD to Parkinsonism over the course of years. Yeah, Paul and I were talking ahead of time. There, There's a movie, I don't know if you ever heard of it, it's called Sleepwalk With Me. It's about this comedian, Mike Birbiglia, who had REM sleep behavior disorder. And as I was reading this, I was like, oh no, I hope he doesn't develop Parkinson's uh, because he that in that movie, he... I, I think this was a true story and how he yep. figured out what he had. He, he, he was in a hotel room and he was dreamed he was being chased or something. He ran through and jumped out a glass second story window and landed in the yard of his hotel. So uh, scary stuff. A lot of the cohorts that are actually being collected for research purposes these days are not people with Parkinson's disease, but either people who have RBD or people who have uh, family histories or genetic risk for Parkinson's. Because again, this is the group I think that from a research standpoint, we may be able to intervene on to change the course of Parkinson's, whereas once a person has motor symptoms, um, it's possible that it might be too late. We, you know, one of the things there, there was a, a JAMA article that Malini had sent us. Uh, it was a review article from a year or two ago, and they were, they were talking about the 
with Parkinson's, it, it seems like these non-motor symptoms may be present for years ahead of time, and then the motor symptoms develop, and then eventually, as the disease progresses, these cortical symptoms deve- develop where people are getting dementia, maybe hallucinations, things like that. Is that widely thought about now, how how things progress, and um, is it is it a late diagnosis? Is that pretty typical, or, or the media, like they're in the middle of that range where they're just having the motor symptoms when most people are diagnosed now? I think that when we try to think about how Parkinson's develops and progresses, it's an increasingly interesting question. What is Parkinson's disease? And when do we make a diagnosis? You know, do we make a diagnosis when the motor symptoms appear? That's the way we do it now. But I think that the disease process, like you point out, Matt, starts years before. If you look for the uh, premotor symptoms, they can start a decade or more before. If we look for Um, biochemical changes of dopamine loss based on functional imaging, we know that that predates the motor symptoms. And so as we're thinking about the way that Parkinson's develops and progresses, there's this idea that um, the pathology, largely based on this protein called alpha-synuclein, that that gradually spreads through the nervous system. So, you know, the, the core feature pathologically of Parkinson's are Lewy bodies. And the main uh, protein component of Lewy bodies is um, aggregates of alpha-synuclein. But by the time we get involvement of those parts of the brain that cause motor symptoms, like the substantia nigra, we can already see alpha-synuclein aggregates elsewhere in the nervous system. We can see it in some of the neurons in the gut. We can see it in other areas, nuclei in the brain stem. And so it's this idea that the alpha-synuclein pathology gradually spreads from one synapse to another through the nervous system, as, and, and usually sort of from a caudal to a rostral approach, starting low down, coming up into the midbrain, where you get involvement of the nigra and develop the motor symptoms, and then it spreads to the cortex, and then people start to develop um, some of the later features like dementia or psychosis. Yeah, I guess we'll, we'll get to treatments later, but uh, it, reading about the the monoclonal antibodies trying to target the alpha synuclein, um, I was just Paul. Paul and I were talking about this ahead of time. It kind of reminds us of like the Alzheimer's trying to target amyloid, and you know they're they're speculating maybe the trials were negative because you're you're not you're intervening early enough, and and there's too much damage by the time. I'm not sure if that's widely believed, but it, it, it's interesting to think about this. Uh, this I had not, I had no idea. I, I just thought Parkinson's was like cogwheeling rigidity, which <laughs> uh, which was uh, not, you know, I, I learned even that wasn't as uh, pathognomonic for uh, Parkinson's. So um, yeah, this was, this, this was a very eye-opening to me. Uh, yeah, no, it's re- it's really interesting for, as a Parkinson's specialist how the way that the the field has changed over the last five, ten, fifteen years. You know, it's really gone from being uh, sort of your quintessential movement disorder, really now being a multi system um, disorder that affects much more than just motor uh, motor systems. Should should we talk about exposures uh, and the, a little bit about how that maybe informs the differential or the risk for Parkinson's? You ask about any of those things, like I, I was reading pesticides and head trauma, sort of medications. What else do you, What else do you ask about in that initial visit? The point that you bring up is, you know, how do we decide that somebody has idiopathic Parkinson's disease or what we typically think of as PD? 
as opposed to some other form of Parkinsonism. You know, Parkinsonism really is more of an umbrella term. Um, it has four cardinal signs, tremor, bradykinesia, rigidity, and postural instability. Bradykinesia is actually the most important one. You know, even though people always think about PD and tremor, you really can't make a diagnosis of Parkinsonism without evidence of bradykinesia. So when I see a patient, the first thing I try to ask is, am I convinced that the patient is Parkinsonian? You know, do they have some combination of these symptoms? Once clinically, they, um, you know, I've, I've convinced myself that they have Parkinsonism. The first one is, is this, like you said, drug-induced Parkinsonism? That's a can't miss because drug-induced forms of Parkinsonism are reversible. And they can be very difficult to distinguish clinically from neurodegenerative forms of Parkinsonism, but it's really crucial to do that. So, you know, most of us think about the antipsychotic medicines, you know, the older generation ones like haloperidol, but even the newer generation dopamine antagonists that psychiatrists think should be better in terms of causing extrapyramidal side effects, medicines like risperidone, olanzapine, aripiprazole, all of them can cause symptoms that look like Parkinsonism. So when I am seeing a patient, that's the first thing I do. I take a good look at their medication list. And if they have any history that suggests that they might have been exposed to a dopamine antagonist in the past, I'll actually probe their recent history. Because symptoms of drug-induced Parkinsonism can sometimes last for months, even after the medicine stopped. Um, and that's really important, too, because sometimes patients come off their medicine for a week or two. They say, well, my tremor didn't go away or my stiffness didn't go away. Therefore, it wasn't the medication. That's not true. So we want to make sure we first exclude drug-induced Parkinsonism, rule out them uh, being on a dopamine antagonist. Also, one of the medicines that we or the group of medicines that we sometimes forget about are medicines like metoclopramide or prochlorperazine, the antiemetics they can also cause extrapyramidal side effects and look like Parkinsonism in some people. You talked a little bit about this, but I would love to hear um, a little bit more detail about how you evaluate for tremor on examination. I know there's this, I feel like there's always a characterization of Hertz, which is not a value that is of any meaning to me specifically. So I guess, what, what are you looking for when you're assessing a patient who kind of reports you with tremor and how you talked about some of this, but if you could sort of summarize your overall approach, that'd be very helpful to me at least. Sure. So when I'm um, teaching my trainees, about the exam of a Parkinson's patient, you'll sometimes hear this uh, MDS-UPDRS um, acronym. And what that means is Movement Disorders Society Unified Parkinson's Disease Rating Scale. And, you know, even as a general neurologist or as an internist, you don't need to know all the elements of the MDS-UPDRS. But the reason why it's useful is because it helps you give a framework for all of the different aspects of the exam that are important for anybody that you're evaluating for Parkinsonism. So with this evaluation, just kind of starting from the head down, you're looking at their facial expression, you're listening to their voice. Often patients with Parkinsonism will have hypophonia or a bit of hoarseness in their voice. When you're checking rigidity, you're checking for tone in their neck and each limb separately. And so the way that I check for tone is it's important to remember that rigidity is something that is velocity independent. So 
when I'm checking for stiffness in somebody who I think has Parkinsonism, I usually stabilize one joint, move their hand or their wrist very slowly. Sometimes if you move it too fast, people will resist you. But you have to remember that Parkinsonian rigidity should be independent of how fast you move the hand. So you can kind of move it faster, slower. What you're checking for is um, resistance. Um, when we are assessing for rigidity, another trick is that you can do some um, maneuvers that will bring out or augment the rigidity. So if you're having somebody, if you're moving somebody's arm, so let's say I'm grabbing, I'm tes testing tone in the left arm. I can have somebody do some maneuvers in the right hand. I can have them open and close their fist, draw some big circles with the arm. And those type of reinforcement maneuvers will bring out subtle rigidity in somebody whose resting tone may be normal. So I go back and forth side to side, try to see whether or not one side is, uh, has more rigidity than the other. You can do the same thing in the legs. And then when I'm checking for um, bradykinesia, it's important to remember that somebody can be slow with one task and not necessarily with all tasks. And so, again, as part of this MDS-UPDRS, there's five different tasks that we do. We have people tap their fingers, open and close their fist, pronation, supination, kind of turn your hand back and forth. You keep your heel flat on the floor and tap your toes, and then you tap your, uh, tap your whole foot. Um, and... And the way that the scale is set up, you want to have people do a minimum of 10 movements of each because there's different aspects that can characterize the bradykinesia. Sometimes it's just slowness. Sometimes it's decrement. If you have people do it 10 times, they may look very normal at the beginning. By the end of the um, sequence, they, the movements may be quite small, and then you can look for hesitation. So those are some of the core features of the uh, uh, of the bradykinesia. And then, Paul, you were mentioning the tremor. So, you know, tremor uh, is tricky because tremor can be quite variable. And so, you know, the most important thing when you're checking a rest tremor is to make sure that the arm is totally at rest. Uh, sometimes, you know, people think rest tremor being that means the hand's not moving. But if their arms are lifted, that's a postural tremor. That's not a rest tremor. And so, you're looking for um, both the amplitude of the movement you're looking for how much of the time the movement is there. And it can be really quite subtle. And sometimes when you distract patients, you ask them to do other tasks, you put them under a little bit of stress, you can bring out that tremor a little bit. Um, and Matt, you had actually mentioned cogwheel rigidity. Uh, so, you know, cogwheeling is essentially somebody who has increased tone and then superimposed on that, they have a tremor. So if a person has no tremor, they may have rigidity without cogwheeling, but that's still Parkinsonism. Yeah, I, I found it funny that cogwheeling is one of the main things I remember about Parkinson's. And then I was reading that it's not specific to Parkinson's and not everyone has it. And I was like, oh, well, this is <laughs> this is not the thing I should remember about this. <laughs> so uh, so now I now I know this. That's yeah. why we do the show. Right, Paul? <laughs> sure. And then um, the last part, the last part yep. uh, um, is that you want people to walk. Because, you know, oftentimes, especially in a busy clinic, in a crowded clinic, you don't always get them up to walk. But for somebody who you're concerned about Parkinsonism, you want to see their ability to stand up, see if they need their hands in order to do it. You have to look at their posture. You know, sort of the classic walk of somebody with early Parkinson's may be just a little bit of slowness, but the posture might be a little bit stooped. And the side that's more affected by the Parkinsonism may have less arm swing. That might be all you see, you know. What we think of as freezing of gait or shuffling gait 
those may be signs of, of Parkinsonism at more advanced stages, but the earliest ones, the ones that you may see in your primary care office, is the person who has a slight bit of tremor on one side, and when they walk, they seem just a hint slow, and that arm's not swinging. And asymmetry is the rule with uh, idiopathic Parkinson's disease, right? It's you, like if there's too much symmetry, and I guess maybe this will transition us to what we'll talk about next, but that's something that sort of goes against that being the diagnosis, right? If there's if there's perfect symmetry to what you're seeing? Yeah, I would say that if this is idiopathic Parkinson's disease, it really should start um, asymmetrically. And if somebody has very symmetric symptoms, um, that would be one of those red flags that would um, make you wonder whether or not they have a different flavor of Parkinsonism. And can I ask, are you checking for postural instability? We were talking before the show, I guess there's a <laughs> test where you go behind the patient and just yank them backwards and they fall down, they failed the test. Which I don't, I'm not sure I'll be trying. Maybe, I, maybe I'm oversimplifying it, but it, I guess a better question is how do you assess for postural instability on physical examination? So the test that you're describing is a pull test and you are checking for retropulsion. And so um, when you are t uh, checking somebody, you have them stand up and you stand behind them. Uh, sort of the teaching is that you should have a wall behind you so that they don't topple you over. But you really, the way I tell people is, okay, I'm going to give you a little pull, okay? I want you to do whatever it takes to keep yourself up on your feet. Uh, if you need to, you should take a step or two back because that little love tap that doesn't cause people to move their feet, that's not a good enough tap. Uh, in order to really test retropulsion, you have to pull hard enough so that a person with normal balance has to take at least one step back. So give them a little pull, make sure that they know what they're, uh, what, what they're in for, and then you say, okay, I'm going to pull a little harder now. And then you pull a little harder, and if they uh, can catch themselves in a, in a step or two, that's normal. If they have to take three or five steps or five or ten steps, then that's what we describe as retropulsion. And then obviously, if their postural instability uh, is pronounced enough, you'll have to catch them. Well, that sounds terrifying. <laughs> May I probably have someone else there with me, Paul, make sure that I don't have the patient end up on the floor. That, that seems like a good tip. Yeah. So we were we were transitioning here to talking about you. You mentioned red flags and and symmetry. Perfect symmetry would be one of the red flags. It, this is another concept that I wasn't really aware of. That there's all these sort of like exclusions or red flags that make you think this could be something else. Can you talk about those? When once you've um, ruled out drug induced Parkinsonism and you have narrowed down your patient to having a neurodegenerative form of Parkinsonism, what is important is to try to figure out what the likelihood is that they have idiopathic PD versus some other form of neurodegenerative Parkinsonism, because this affects their uh, response to medication, it affects their prognosis, and it affects the way that you counsel your patient. So um, I'm just, I'll just give you a couple of examples. You know, So somebody has PSP, progressive supranuclear palsy. That is a person who's going to come into your office often with early falls, People with idiopathic PD don't fall early. They may be a little slow. They may shuffle a little bit, but they don't fall. If you have early falls and you look at their eye movements and their eye movements don't look very normal, you know, they kind of stare at you and their eye movements are very slow, you should think about PSP. If somebody is Parkinsonian, but they come into the office because they had a syncopal episode, because they had profound orthostatic hypotension, or you get a history especially in guys 
that they've had urinary retention or um, erectile dysfunction that's not explained by prostate or other issues. That combination, Parkinsonism with significant autonomic dysfunction, should make you think of a diagnosis like multiple system atrophy, MSA. If they have a lot of cognitive issues very early on, again, you know, people with Parkinson's, they can develop cognitive problems, but they're usually not early. So if you get a history of somebody who is a little slow, a little stiff, but has some early executive or visual spatial dysfunction, you know, maybe you get a sense that they have occasional hallucinations, especially if they got tried on some Parkinson's medicine, then you might think about a diagnosis like dementia with Lewy bodies. So these are some of the red flags. They're really flags that point to another diagnosis. So early cognitive impairment, um, early severe autonomic dysfunction, um, early falls. Uh, these are uh, sort of red flags that would should give you pause about whether or not um, somebody has idiopathic PD. And then we'll get more into more of this in, in a little bit. But when you're talking about treatment, their treatment response is going to tell you a little bit more about their diagnosis as well. I know multi-system atrophy seems like it's a challenging diagnosis to make. And because we just talked about earlier, the non-motor symptoms, constipation and hyposmia and some of those things that sort of per, per, can precede idiopathic Parkinson's by years. But it sounds like maybe just the tempo of those things is is much different in multi-system atrophy. Is that how you differentiate them? Um, they tend to progress more quickly. So, you know, I think that when we think about quote unquote rapid progression in the neurodegenerative field, you kind of have to take it with a grain of salt. <laughs> but somebody who is asymptomatic and then gets to the point that they are needing, you know, quite a bit of help or having significant functional limitations or, you know, needing a cane or a walker or something within a few years, that's too fast for idiopathic Parkinson's disease. Now, one of the tricky things is oftentimes your history um, is not always accurate. You know, so sometimes somebody can look like a uh, typical Parkinson's disease based on the tremor they have, the absence of other red flags. You get the history and they tell you, oh yeah, no, they were totally fine until we were on vacation and then they couldn't get off the plane, you know? And so it, people can um, uh, mask a lot of Parkinsonian symptoms for quite a long time because again, it is something that usually changes slowly. And so if you if there's some disconnect between what you see and what you're hearing on exam, it's good to try to probe a little bit and, and uh, convince yourself as the clinician how long this has really been going on. Now, Paul, you you would like to order a lot of neuroimaging. I know that's your thing. Did you have any questions about that? <laughs> Stellar setup. Yeah, no, I was, I was just <laughs> thinking. Like, I feel like my 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 usual sort of dumb dumb binary brain is it would be sort of a central tremor or something that's kind of Parkinson's or Parkinson adjacent. I think once I get to away from a central tremor, they're probably headed towards a movement specialist direction. So I guess my question, and maybe what Matt is asking is, is this something I should get an MRI for in, in anticipation of that visit? Is that helpful to me at all? Or should I leave that to the experts? So um, as far as structural imaging goes, if a person has typical idiopathic Parkinson's disease and um, doesn't have any other abnormal exam findings, the likelihood is that the MRI is not gonna be informative. So, you know, as a, as a movement specialist, if somebody's referred to me without a brain MRI, there's a couple of things that would be red flags, again, that would lead me to order an MRI. One is, is there anything atypical about this? Because some of the atypical syndromes can have particular imaging correlates that can be helpful. Um, 
if somebody has a lower body predominant form of Parkinsonism, so they don't have a lot of tremor, you look above the waist, you have them do the you know bradykinesia tasks, they don't look that slow, and you get them up to walk, and they're really slow and shuffling, or they have freezing, that person I would definitely get an MRI for. You're really looking for two um, uh, typical causes of lower body Parkinsonism. One is vascular disease. So somebody who's got a lot of frontal white matter disease can present with a slow shuffling gait that um, without a lot of upper body involvement. And then the other one is normal pressure hydrocephalus, NPH. Uh, NPH is treatable um, with uh, you know, a VP shunt. And so again, that's a diagnosis that you wouldn't want to miss. And the clinical features that would lead you to think about that is somebody who has um, Parkinsonism that really involves their gait and, and, and oh, they're walking a lot more than it involves other symptoms. So that's what I usually think of in terms of getting an MRI scan. You know, there's obviously, there's no harm in getting an MRI. You know, I don't know if your hospital is like this. Everybody comes into the emergency room for anything, they get an MRI. So, you know, I think somebody who's got Parkinsonian symptoms, it's reasonable to think about doing an MRI, but there are some cases where it's going to be much more important than others. Yeah, I mean, we have these MRI machines. You know they like to keep them running 24-7, essentially. <laughs> sure. No, cash like we're just doing plain films. The other imaging study it's good to know about for Parkinsonism are DAT scans or dopamine transporter scans. Yeah, that's what so, I, that was going to be my joke. I, I want DAT. That's what it's <laughs> You know, so, so DAT scans are a functional study. It's a spec scan. And with these studies... Um, the radiologist is injecting a ligand that gets into the brain and binds to presynaptic dopamine transporters. So uh, for patients who have lost dopamine neurons, they're going to have decreased uptake. And so the classic picture of Parkinsonism is that you have, or Parkinson's disease, is that you'll have decreased uptake more on one side of the brain than the other, corresponding to the symptoms. Um, it's important to remember that DAT scans don't differentiate Parkinson's disease from other neurodegenerative forms of Parkinsonism. DAT scans can be good to um, rule out people who have a central tremor or vascular Parkinsonism or drug-induced Parkinsonism. They have normal um, dopaminergic neurons. So those patients will have a normal DAT scan. But patients with PD, PSP, MSA, any of these other neurodegenerative conditions that we talked about, they'll have abnormal DAT scans, and the, and the scan won't be able to differentiate those. In a specialist office, your office, uh, how often are, are you getting those often? Do you find them helpful? I, I don't think Paul and I are going to be ordering them. That was part of my joke to Paul, that he likes to, he likes to order the new fancy tests. But. Um, this is, I think, variable, you know, from, from um, physician to physician. Uh, I personally don't order them if clinically the patient looks like somebody who has PD or another neurodegenerative Parkinsonism, uh, another neurodegenerative form of Parkinsonism, because I don't think the DAT scans are going to change what you do. Um, I would say that the two times I order it is if there's something, you know, uncertain, you know, a little bit of a, a tremor, but not clear Parkinsonism, um, where I might get it. Uh, the other uh, situation where I'll get it is there are some patients who don't feel comfortable with a clinical diagnosis of Parkinson's disease. You know, when somebody comes to see me, I spend that first visit, and at the end I say, you know, based on these symptoms, I worry that this is early Parkinson's disease. 
you know, patients like tests and they like to, uh, you know, have the confirmatory test. And, you know, the DAT scan's not 100% either, but I think that for those patients, I may order a DAT scan because it's really important when I'm seeing a patient to have them feel um, feel like they can move forward with the diagnosis. And so if, there's, if they're continuing to question the diagnosis, a DAT scan uh, sometimes can help that because they'll see the report from the radiologist. I want to bring this back to our case here. We, so we had Mr. Robinson. This was a 68-year-old gentleman. He was having this uh, tremor. It was asymmetric. He felt like he was just slowing down. Uh, his wife was saying that she can't read his grocery list because he's writing very small. He had some of these things we talked about. We, we know he's had constipation for a while. Sometimes he's lightheaded, so sort of the orthostatic, some of the, having some of the non-motor and motor symptoms that we've discussed. I guess, how would you, you, you just mentioned a little bit of your script there. You said, I'm worried you might have this. How do you explain to a patient at a first visit when, when they're sort of starting to cope with this potential diagnosis of Parkinson's, idiopathic Parkinson's disease? You'd be surprised how many people, when they come to the office with this particular complaint, Parkinson's is already on their mind, especially if it's rest tremor, especially if they've consulted Dr. Google. You know, they are, may already be worried about Parkinson's. And so when they hear it, sometimes it's not that much of a surprise. You know, I think that um, I try to be careful in the way that I talk to a patient with that first diagnosis because... I have to reflect what um, my clinical sense. And in some cases where the diagnosis of idiopathic Parkinson's disease is pretty clear, I can tell people that, you know, this is something that's going to progress slowly. There's still a lot of work that we need to do in terms of trying to find medications or treatments that are going to slow this down. And, uh, you know, if it's the right person, I'll offer them opportunities to participate in research trials, because this is a lot of where the research is focused. Um, we'll talk about lifestyle issues. The most important thing that any of us can um, counsel our patients with Parkinson's to do is exercise. So, you know, obviously exercise is good because it's going to help with your mobility and help you manage your motor symptoms. But there's more and more evidence these days to suggest that exercise itself might actually have some neuroprotective effects. There's even a research trial going on now, uh, an NIH-funded trial randomizing people to moderate and um, vigorous levels of exercise to see whether or not that might make a difference in terms of disease progression monitored clinically and also in terms of DAT scan. So that's the first thing I will tell patients to do is that you know, really want you to encourage you to um, get into a regular program of exercise. And, uh, you know, my physical therapy colleagues who see patients with early Parkinson's is that, you know, we would love to see these patients very early on. You know, they may be quite, um, still quite active, but if a physical therapist with some expertise in Parkinson's can help them come up with a better exercise plan, it's something that probably is going to make more of a difference at this point than starting medication. Um, and then, you know, I kind of move forward from there, make sure that people understand that there are treatments that can help the symptoms. And what I hope when I see somebody who has typical Parkinson's, what I hope is that when they leave the office, they feel like um, they have a place to start. They feel like, you know, I'll refer them to, um, you know, some online resources, 
you know, there's some great Parkinson's um, organizations, the Parkinson's Foundation, the Michael J. Fox Foundation, the American Parkinson Disease Association. These all have great uh, material, but I want to make sure that they get to the right place. And then I hope they leave the office um, recognizing that they have a diagnosis that although we can't cure it yet, our goal is to do our very best to keep them at their high quality of life for as long as we can. Molly, do you want to move us on with the next part of the case here and uh, I guess start us off with whatever the next question is going to be? Sure. So Mr. Robinson's referred to movement disorder specialist. He's diagnosed with Parkinson's disease and he begins treatment with carbidopa levodopa. So we wanted to get your input on what your general approach to initial pharmacological treatment of Parkinson's disease is. This is actually one of the most interesting questions. And as a movement disorder specialist, I, I have to say this is what makes trying to manage these patients interesting and, and, and fun. Because, you know, as a Parkinson's specialist, we have a lot of different pharmacologic options. Um, carbidopa, levodopa, like you mentioned, Melanie, that's the most it's the oldest medicine, still the best medicine for Parkinson's. Um, another option for early therapy are dopamine agonists, medicines like pramipexol or ropinerol. These work by binding to postsynaptic dopamine receptors so they don't have to be converted in the same way that levodopa has to be enzymatically converted to dopamine. And another class of medicines that can be used for initial therapy are monoamine oxidase type B inhibitors, MAOB inhibitors. So, MAOB inhibitors are uh, not very potent in terms of their symptomatic effects. There's a few different ones. Selegiline is the oldest. Risagiline, or uh, you know, a lot of people know risagiline as Azelec. That's probably the one that's used the most. There's also a newer one, safinamide. So there's a few different MAOB inhibitors. These are not that strong in terms of their ability to um, treat uh, motor symptoms. Um, 15 years ago, there was actually some controversy about whether or not um, uh, risagiline might have some disease-modifying effects. And so some people will still use it early for that reason. But when you're deciding between levodopa and uh, dopamine agonist, um, there's a few things you want to think about. You want to think about, well, which one's going to be the most effective? That's usually levodopa. Um, which one is less likely to cause side effects? Um, and side effects can be both short-term and long-term side effects. And this is where you have to give a little bit more thought. It's a little bit more nuanced in your decision-making. Um, dopamine agonists usually have more short-term side effects. Um, nausea, um, excessive daytime sleepiness. There's been people um, who, there are case reports of people taking dopamine agonists falling asleep while driving. This, here's an interesting one I heard from a pilot patient of mine once. If you're on a dopamine agonist, you're not allowed to have a commercial pilot's license. But if, you have, if you're have on levodopa, that is allowed. Oh. Because they're not thinking about the Parkinson's. They're thinking about the daytime sleepiness that you can get with, a, uh, with an agonist. Um, and then the side effect that I think has kind of swung the pendulum back to levodopa is the fact that dopamine agonists are, um, they have a two to threefold higher risk of causing impulse control disorders. This blew my mind, Paul. I had no idea. Yeah, I feel like this had rattled around in my brain at some point and I'd forgotten it, but this was a nice uh, reminder. Nice is maybe not the right word, but a good reminder. Can you can you give an example? How does that present, the impulse control disorders? 
So the, the four types of impulse control disorders that are most often associated with Parkinson's medications, especially agonists, compulsive gambling, hypersexuality, compulsive buying, and binge eating. Um, and so I'm sure your patients are like mine. These are not side effects of medication that anybody is ever going to report to their doctor <laughs> unless they're told about it ahead of time. Yeah. You know, so if I prescribe somebody pramipexol or ropinirol or another agonist, I will tell them these are side effects that you should watch out for. And if there's any inkling of it, you know, be sure to let me know we should find a different alternative. Um, you know, one of the interesting things about this impulse control disorder is that there's now this other syndrome associated with dopamine agonists called dopamine agonist withdrawal syndrome or DAWS. And the highest risk factor for somebody developing dopamine agonist withdrawal syndrome is that they have impulse control. Oh issues. gosh. So you... so you start them and then you can't get them off the medicine. And so that's a lot of the reason why people have kind of swung to levodopa. It's the best medicine anyway. Um, and so, you know, uh, yeah. The risks of dopamine agonists, I think, in a lot of cases, will outweigh the potential benefits. Now, I I see these medicines most commonly prescribed for restless leg syndrome, and I wonder if the dosing is way different, or is that a risk that just people aren't aware of? Because I mean, for restless leg, like I guess, give the patient some iron supplements first, and <laughs> before you like potentially give them an impulse control disorder that that if you take the medicine away, they're going to have withdrawal. I mean, that sounds terrifying. Yeah, the doses of medications of the agonists that are used for RLS are typically much lower than those that are used for Parkinson's disease. But I would think that's a good reminder that even somebody who you prescribe, you know, one of the agonists do for RLS, you should still just kind of give them a heads up, say, you know, these are not very common. And especially at the doses that we're going to use them, it's not a very common side effect, but, you know, you should watch out for them anyway. Wow. That is, that is just the uh, audience. Uh, maybe, maybe you knew more than uh, Paul, Paul and I did, but that's, that is a scary side effect. So be careful with those uh when you're prescribing for your restless leg or if, if someone has Parkinson's and ask about those symptoms. Uh, let's, I, I think probably more within our wheelhouse in primary care, it, what, what do you think we can do for some of the non-motor symptoms, the autonomic symptoms that, that patients are having? Uh, what, what, what should we look for there? So again, you know, when you're thinking about autonomic dysfunction in Parkinson's, uh, it can start early. And it generally progresses throughout the course. Uh, the other thing that's important to remember is that a lot of the non-motor symptoms are actually exacerbated by dopamine replacement. So you start somebody on carbidopa, levodopa, you can make constipation worse. Uh, you can make autonomic, uh, you can make orthostatic hypotension worse. And so, uh, you know, especially in the more advanced Parkinson's patient, oftentimes you have to think about balance. And you have to think about what are the symptoms that are most limiting to a, uh, a patient. Uh, if they're having problems with orthostatic hypotension, the first thing I would do is review their Parkinson's medications and uh, taper off the dopamine agonist because that generally is more of a problem than levodopa. You know, I would say in general, as you get to more advanced Parkinson's disease, rather than adding more and more medicines, one of the ways to think about it is to try to simplify more and more to just a levodopa-based regimen. Uh, that's likely to be what's most effective. But, you know, to your point, Matt, I think, you know, 
oftentimes patients will, with PD, will have constipation, can be quite severe. And so, you know, I think you can use your arsenal of, of bowel meds to try to help if there's a question specifically about what's causing the GI symptoms, you might have a low threshold to refer to a gastroenterologist, make sure that there's not something else that's causing um, you know, severe constipation or uh, gastroparesis or something like that. Um, and same thing with orthostatic hypotension. You know, I think you have to pay attention to it and monitor for it before a person has their syncopal episode and hits their head. So, you know, if somebody is on a higher dose of Parkinson's medicines and you get even a, a slight hint of um, a little bit of dizziness or lightheadedness standing, you know, we want to make sure we check those orthostatic signs in the office and make sure that we're aware of it up front so that we can encourage them to drink more fluid or, you know, eat more salt, assuming they don't have reasons that they shouldn't do that. And you can think about medicines to, uh, you know, help support the blood pressure like fludrocortisone or midodrine if you need it. Yeah. And then that's kind of, you're sacrificing, uh, you're, you're sort of trying to boost the standing blood pressure, but then you have to worry about supine hypertension, right, is what I was reading about. So I I usually try not to mess around with those, but do you find, is it is it a large percentage of your patients where you're having to start those medicines for the orthostatic hypotension? Uh, for idiopathic Parkinson's disease, it's usually not that early. You know, again, okay. um, significant dysautonomia for PD usually comes later. Um, if you have a lot of early autonomic dysfunction, you might think about MSA. Yeah. Okay. But um, you do have to pay attention to these things. And again, I think that, you know, trying to take care of somebody with Parkinson's, I think really involves a lot of teamwork between the movement disorder specialist, um, primary care doctor, you know, other specialists like urologists or gastroenterologists or psychiatrists, because there are so many different systems that can be involved in, in PD. And if our goal is to help people live well, we have to take care of all of these. And it feels like awareness is half the fight. We were, we were talking a little bit. It just seems like so much of the non-motor stuff is well within the primary care wheelhouse and just sort of knowing to ask, like be really diligent in your depression screening, maybe even more so, because we can do depression. And I, I guess we'll talk a bit about what medications might be more efficacious. It seems like SSRIs are kind of gone for or erectile dysfunction or constipation or low back pain. Like these are all things that we see day in and day out. So just sort of being mindful and and knowing to ask about them, because I, I think there's a lot that we can address specifically in the primary care setting that's just outside of the the stuff we feel less comfortable with. Paul, you're you're America's primary care doctor. I wanted to poll you about this. Are you starting people on levodopa, carbidopa, and sending them off to neurology? I I haven't had the guts to do that myself, but I just wanted to know your practice and how you think about that. No, I, I always appreciate when you sort of call out my my personal practice um, on the on this broad podcast platform. But I, <laughs> in my own practice, I do not um, start medications. I will defer to the experts for that. I, I'm like you. I don't have quite the courage to of my. <laughs> I'll have confidence to try them. Let's say Paul and I were uh, braver or more confident in our practice. Would would sending someone to you already on carbidopa, levodopa, it, does that make it harder for you to make the diagnosis of idiopathic Parkinson's? Could we mess anything up by starting the medication if we have the wrong diagnosis? You know, I would think a little bit, um, you know, for our audience, think about how ready the access is to somebody who... Uh, you know, how ready access you have to neurologists. I think that if it's going to take six months or longer and it's hard to get them in to see a neurologist and especially a movement disorder specialist, 
if a person is really experiencing significant limitation, you know, they're really changing the way they live, um, they're having trouble um, doing their day-to-day routine, I think you can start a little bit of carbidopa, levodopa. You know, I think that um, one of the uh, issues we alluded to earlier is that sometimes a trial of carbidopa, levodopa can help you diagnostically. You know, somebody who's got idiopathic PD should get better in terms of their motor symptoms with some levodopa. Some of the other atypical forms of Parkinsonism that we discussed tend to be more refractory or less responsive to levodopa. And so you really can't do harm in the sense that, you know, if if the diagnosis is in doubt by the time that they show up in the neurologist's office, one, either their symptoms are very mild or they don't have Parkinson's. And if their symptoms are very mild, we can always taper off the levodopa and see how they do, and they should be okay. You know, so what I would say is, um, if you see a patient, you're suspicious for idiopathic Parkinson's disease based on some of the things we've talked about today, um, I, I don't think you should be afraid to start levodopa. The one thing I would say is start at a low dose and gradually increase. You know, we all here in medical school, Carbidopa, levodopa, 25, 100, one tablet TID, right? That's what we all hear. What I usually start, start at a low dose, gradually work the dose up because the one thing you don't want is you don't want your person with, in your, your patient with Parkinson's to develop nausea from the medication and say, no, you know what, I'm not going back there again. Because, you know, as a, as a Parkinson's specialist, levodopa is our friend. If a person doesn't tolerate levodopa, um, a lot of the other, uh, the treatment's going to be a lot harder. So one tablet three times a day is a is that's considered a low dose, or do you start it at once a day and then gradually go up to the three times a day? Yeah, this is every uh, every movement disorder specialist you ask is going to have a slightly different way of doing this. What I normally do is I might give them half a tablet twice a day, you know, first thing in the morning, another one shortly before lunch, and do that for a week. If they're doing okay with that, then maybe go up to a half a tablet three times a day, adding a dose before supper. And then the third week, I might go up to one tablet three times a day. And the reason I say before meals is because levodopa gets absorbed through the gut um, through the same transporters as amino acids. So sometimes if you take um, levodopa with a lot of food, especially protein-containing foods, the medicine doesn't get absorbed quite as well. So we're now fast-forwarding six years. So still with Mr. Robinson, fast-forward six years later, he comes back to your office with his wife. He'd initially, when you'd first started him on, on levodopa, carbidopa, experienced a really profound improvement in his motor symptoms, though more recently has felt the effects of levodopa wear off after a couple of hours, which is required adjustment of the levodopa dosing. He's also been experiencing increasing effects on his gait, a worsening slow shuffling stride, and increasing unsteadiness, particularly in the off periods when the levodopa has worn off. His wife also tells you that she's noticed some changes in in his cognition over the past year or so. She tells you that he's, he'd always planned their vacations in the past, but lately he hasn't been able to figure out how to book their flights or plan their trips to the airport, and she's had to do this for him. She also mentions to you that he seems more withdrawn and subdued lately. And then the most concerning thing to her that she tells you has been that over the past month, he's mentioned to her multiple times that he thinks they're good friends and neighbors the Hawthorns are spying on them and trying to steal money from them. And he's told her that he has seen them wandering around their house at night. So this is clearly 
a, a case of more advanced Parkinson's six years down the line with Mr. Robinson, starting with kind of these motor symptoms that have progressed now with this wearing off of the levodopa. How do you approach motor symptoms in more advanced Parkinson's disease where you're seeing these wearing off phenomenons or dyskinesias? Yeah, so this is um, one of the uh, aspects of Parkinson's that I think if you see this as a primary care doctor, it's time to refer them to a neurologist or a movement disorder specialist just because the treatment options are different. You know, levodopa is a great medication, but the half-life of levodopa is really short. So if you measure levodopa in the bloodstream, half-life is a couple of hours. And so, um, you know, in earlier stages of Parkinson's, your body can accommodate that because the levodopa gets converted into dopamine and you uh, don't get the wearing off even if the blood levels drop off quickly. Uh, but as uh, Parkinson's advances, people will have a shorter uh, window of time that the medication's working. They'll experience um, on-off fluctuations. They'll know when the medicine is working, when the medicine's wearing off, or even when they're taking it on schedule, they may find that the wearing off is occurring at the end of the dose. Uh, that's one of the things that Malini was describing. People take it on time and the medicine's not lasting long enough. And then um, when they Need, when they take enough medicine to help them achieve an on state, they may have too much movement, what we call levodopa-induced dyskinesias. You know, these are kind of writhing, swaying, bobbing, sometimes it's the mouth and face. And so trying to find the balance between um, wearing off, which is a sign of not enough medication, and levodopa-induced dyskinesias, which means that the medicine at some points during the day may be too high, this is a real challenge. And so there's a, f a few different ways to do it. You know, the way to think about it is about the pharmacokinetics. What can we do to help stretch out the duration of action of the medicine without so much sort of highs and lows? This is where some of the enzyme inhibitors, a COMT inhibitor like entacopone, or we talked about MAOB inhibitors before, you can sometimes add those to levodopa to help them stretch it out a little bit. There's also some extended release forms not the CR form. So sometimes people hear about, you know, uh, carbidopa, levodopa, ER, or Cinemet CR. This medicine is actually only lasts a little bit longer than regular carbidopa, levodopa, but there are newer forms that um, have a more extended half-life. These can all be helpful in terms of addressing the wearing off. Um, and then if a person's really dyskinetic, but they can't tolerate a lower dose of uh, levodopa, the one medicine that's available to treat um, levodopa-induced dyskinesias is a medicine called amantadine. And amantadine, it's an older generation medicine, used to be used for the flu, but in Parkinson's, it can be really helpful to try to help levodopa-induced dyskinesias. Um, and then, you know, thinking about fluctuations, the last treatment option that this particular scenario will raise is, is a person a good candidate for deep brain stimulation surgery, DBS? So patients who have a good response to levodopa but are experiencing motor fluctuations or um, finding that they're not able to optimize their motor response with oral medicines alone might be a good candidate for DBS. Uh, sort of an interesting thing. You know, I have patients who have other forms of Parkinson in them which don't respond to medicine, and they say, well, can I be referred for uh, surgery? Unfortunately, the answer is no. Patients with the other forms of neurodegenerative Parkinsonism that don't respond to levodopa also aren't going to respond to DBS. So one of the sort of requirements for um, uh, a DBS referral is to show that they have a good levodopa response. 
What about this enteral gel? This is, I had not heard of this and I was shocked. That it sounds like you're putting in a jejunal tube uh, or some sort of a gastrostomy tube to, to deliver this. It seems, seemed wild. It's not something we use a lot, but it's nice to have options. You know, I think if the problem is with levodopa is um, sort of the variability and ups and downs in terms of the blood levels, the best way that you can guarantee sort of a steady level is to deliver the medication in a steady way. So there is a, a intestinal gel form that you mentioned, Matt, that's given through a GJ tube. And it's not for everybody, but for patients who have significant fluctuations and aren't a candidate for DBS surgery, that is an option. There's actually a newer form that is currently being um, reviewed by the FDA, which is a subcutaneous form. And so, you know, if you think about your patients who have a subcutaneous, like an insulin pump, there's a levodopa pump that's in development. Oh, cool. It's going to deliver it under the skin. And I think that's going to change the way we take care of some of these patients because one, it's obviously less invasive than a GJ tube. And um, the fact that you bypass the gut is actually also a good thing. You might get more reliable levels than people who are um, having variable degrees of, of absorption through the gut, which the GJ tube still requires. Yeah. And and as you we we mentioned earlier, I mean, we're still talking about just mitigating symptoms, like we still don't have a disease-modifying therapy available other than exercise, maybe, it sounds like. Uh, yeah, that's right. I mean, there's a lot of research going on in that area. You know, if we do this podcast again in five years, 10 years, hopefully we have something to talk about in terms of the disease modifica uh, modification uh, um, area, but we're not quite there yet. Paul just looked terrified that he might still be doing this podcast in five or 10 years. <laughs> Malini, what what else should we ask about here? I, I know we have a little bit of time left um, to and a little bit more to get through. Yeah, I think um, one other kind of major feature of this kind of later um, stage of Mr. Robinson's presentation has been some of the cognitive effects and um, and some of the psychiatric effects. And definitely would, in terms of this kind of developing executive dysfunction, um, what seems like with the plane flights would 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 definitely love. Love your thoughts on um, how how you kind of think about cognitive impairment and dementia in Parkinson's disease, and what the what features you typically look for there. Yeah, so the cognitive and the behavioral aspects of more advanced Parkinson's disease are often the ones that are hardest to ma uh, to manage. You know, if there is one risk factor for somebody with advanced Parkinson's ending up in a uh, nursing facility, it's actually PD psychosis. Um, it's not that surprising when you think about it. You know, when people start to develop some paranoia or mistrust of their uh, family, their care partner, they become really difficult to manage. And so, um, Malin, you brought up two um, sort of interesting points of this case. One is sort of the cognitive component, and then the other one is the more neuropsychiatric component or the PD psychosis. Um, when we think about um, cognitive impairment in Parkinson's, um, there are some features that differentiate it from Alzheimer's. So, you know, somebody with Alzheimer's may have significant issues primarily with, with short-term memory, with, with encoding and recall. The deficits in PD dementia tend to be more um, executive function or visual spatial, maybe less involvement of recall at the beginning. And so this is good to know because sometimes people can have Parkinson's and have Alzheimer's and the flavor of their cognitive deficits 
may be a little bit different. Um, the one FDA-approved medication to treat um, cognitive issues associated with Parkinson's disease is rivastigmine. So this is based on a randomized trial looking at people with Parkinsonism with cognitive issues and showing a benefit for rivastigmine. It doesn't mean that other cholinesterase inhibitors like denepazil, which a lot of us use, aren't effective, but they just haven't been studied specifically in this patient population. So they're not FDA approved for that indication. But, you know, I think that um, if I have a patient who's starting to exhibit cognitive issues that are impairing their quality of life, I usually start them on on rivastigmine or if uh, if needed, another cholinesterase inhibitor. But the response is going to be more modest in general than it is for using dopamine medications to treat the motor symptoms. So that's, you know, unfortunately, all of our experience with some of these neurodegenerative dementias, you know, the denepazils and the rivastigmines of the world, they're not that great medications, but they're what we have. And I think that they're uh, worth trying. Yeah, it seemed like the uh, the effect size, like with the Alzheimer's trials, the effect size wasn't wasn't super large in, in that in the rivastigmine trial as well, from what I was... Yeah, it's not it's not very strong, but I think that there was a benefit, statistically significant, and you know, looking at um, you know, kind of clinical global impression of change, there was a shift in the curve where those on rivastigmine had a better um, had better cognitive function mm-hmm. than those not. So I think again, it's worth trying, but but with a relatively low threshold to stop the medicine if the patient's not tolerating it. Yeah. So. Oh, and you mentioned, so, you know, the psychosis. So, you know, the one of the, the biggest challenges in terms of managing psychosis in Parkinson's is that the typical medicines that we typically, that we usually use as antipsychotics, we don't want to use. So the dopamine antagonists that we would use for somebody who has psychosis in another context are going to make their Parkinsonism worse. Um, and so... Uh, you know, one thing that's it's good for all of us to think about is whether we're seeing patients in the clinic or seeing patients in an inpatient setting. Um, really try to avoid medicines like olanzapine and risperidone uh, for people with Parkinsonism, even if they're agitated in the hospital, if you can. Um, if you can. Because when you treat patients with those medicines, um, you'll tend to make their, their motor symptoms worse to the point that they may have trouble walking point that they may have trouble getting out of the hospital if, if that's the uh, setting that you're doing it. So we really have three choices, really. Quetiapine, the newest medicine, which is called pimavanserin, which is um, branded as Nuplazid, and the other medicine is clozapine. So quetiapine is the easiest one to use, and it's the one we often use first. But actually, the FDA, uh, uh, sorry, the um, randomized trials don't actually show benefit of quetiapine over placebo. But in real life, they do work. And so I think that if somebody's developing some mild hallucinations, or some mild agitation, quetiapine's the easiest medicine to try first. Um, Pimavanserin is FDA approved for the treatment of PD psychosis. Um, it's easy to dose because it's only one dose, 34 milligrams. Everybody gets the same dose. Um, the one caveat to pimavanserin is it takes a few weeks to reach a steady state and oftentimes a whole month before you really see a clinical benefit when you do see a clinical benefit. So using pimavanserin in an acute setting isn't something that really makes sense. You're not going to see an immediate benefit. And then the one medicine that we probably underuse is clozapine. Clozapine is probably the best medicine 
to treat PD psychosis, but because of that need to check the um, CBC, specifically the um, the white count, to make sure that they're not developing um, a, uh, granul- a granulocytosis, that becomes a nuisance in terms of treating it. And so we don't use clozapine as much as we should, even though it's the best medicine for PD psychosis. Yeah, I think you have to be on a special reg- registry to even be able to prescribe it as well as a clinician. So it seems it's just there's just barriers to that. But well, maybe maybe the last thing we'll ask you to comment on. I know depression, anxiety, uh, apathy are things that I see. I guess apathy maybe that doesn't belong in the same bucket with them. But can you just comment on those things and? Um, at some point, we'll, I promise we'll let you go soon, but this is this has been fantastic, and uh, we just want to soak up as much knowledge as we can. Sure. No, it's it's actually, um, I, I think that anxiety, depression, mood, it's, it's interesting, Matt, you downplay the apathy because the apathy oftentimes is the most common symptom of depression with Parkinson's disease. You know, people with PD, at, depression in the association of uh, Parkinson's may present primarily with lack of motivation, uh, anhedonia, lack of pleasure. And that may be their primary symptom rather than typically what we think of as, as depression. Um, but, you know, the the medicines that we use to treat uh, anxiety and depression and apathy in the context of Parkinson's is not different than what uh, is used for people without Parkinson's. So when you think about medicines like, you know, SSRIs or SNRIs, um, bupropion, um, you know, these are the same types of medicines, sometimes tricyclics, you know, the same types of medicines that we would use for patients with Parkinson's. And, you know, I think that something like bupropion, which has some dopaminergic activity, may be a little bit more, um, may help with apathy or help um, uh, with somebody who has significant fatigue or lack of motivation, where an SSRI may be more helpful for somebody who has you know your more typical anxious depression and and we see both of those types of uh, um, types of symptoms in people with PD. Can you see worsening of tremor with the bupropion? That would be the concern I would have with that because I feel of all the antidepressants, that's the one that I actually see medication induced tremor with probably the most. Yeah, I think both bupropion, even the SSRIs and SNRIs. I think that any of the um, medications that you're using for psychiatric symptoms, you can see worsening tremor. But the thing is that you know they're all reversible, and so I think that you can try and uh, address the uh, mood issue in the way that you feel is appropriate. And you, like everything else, you weigh the pros and the cons. And sometimes, if you can actually help the anxiety, reducing the anxiety will also reduce the tremor. So it can kind of cut both ways. You just have to uh, um, see how your see how your patient responds. But I would say that you know the take home points are one: when you're seeing a patient with uh, a tremor. Uh, be sure to take a careful history, careful exam. You know, look for features that raise suspicion for Parkinsonism in general and Parkinson's disease in specific. Um, you know, as primary care doctors, pay attention to those non-motor symptoms because you know your um, you know your friendly neighborhood neurologist may be uh, prescribing the levodopa, but depending on on that person's practice patterns, they may not necessarily address the constipation or the orthostatic hypotension or the anxiety or the depression. Um, and you know, you as primary care doctors often know these patients best, and so especially if you have somebody who has a um, you know Parkinson's that's really kind of progressed over time, um, be proactive and make sure that patients doing okay 
ask for subtle signs of cognitive change or you know subtle signs of, of PD psychosis. Uh, and you and your team can be there to support the patient and their care partner. And I think if uh, if we all do that, then that's, you know, until that day when we've got a cure for Parkinson's, uh, I think this is what our focus should be. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Strong work. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com. And while you're there, sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. Plus, twice each month, you'll get our Curbsiders Digest recapping the latest practice-changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine. And we're committed to high-value practice-changing knowledge. And we want your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or now on Spotify. You can also email us at askcurbsiders at gmail.com. Reminder that this and most episodes are available for free CME through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. I wanted to give a special thanks to our writer and producer for this episode, Malini Gandhi, and to our whole team. The Curbsiders is produced and edited by the team at Podpaste. Elizabeth Proto runs our social media, and Stuart Brigham composed our theme music. And with all that, until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Wado. And I've been Malini Gandhi. And as always, Irving Dr. Paul Nelson Williams, thank you and goodbye.